This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. I used to think, oh, you just brew the beer that you want and go into the barrel. Just do it right the first time. But I was really kind of, I was completely missing the uh, advantage of being able to fine-tune flavors with different beers. This week on the show, we take a look at spirit barrel aging processes, procedures, and techniques for small-scale programs. Hi, my name is Julian Schrego, and I am the brewmaster and co-owner of Beechwood Brewing in California. You wrote that the barrel is an ingredient and not an additive. What exactly do you mean by that? So I, I think that people should think of the totality of everything that they're using. Uh, and you should ideally design the beer recipe specifically to work with the barrel. Uh, some people may have an amazing imperial stout that stands on its own. And they think that amazing imperial stout plus barrel equals uh, yet another level of awesome. And that, that may not work out. The flavors may not be compatible. So um, if there are flavors that you are going to be, that you know you're going to be getting from the barrel or any other ingredient, you might need to add or subtract those components from the base beer. So uh, I'm sure some people out there have tasted barrel-aged beers, uh, especially stouts uh, that may have a little bit of a coconut character to them. And sometimes so, so much so that you might think coconut was actually added to the beer, when in fact that's most likely a compound called whiskey lactone that naturally exists in the barrel. So, you know, that it, you don't always get that from a barrel, but it's not, it's not uncommon. Um, and sometimes we get that from specific, uh, spirit, uh, distillers, I would say that, that work with certain, certain coopers, uh, where the barrels, you know, regularly have that flavor. 
and sometimes we will we might even blend in uh, a coconut stout to the finished barrel aged beer to emphasize that particular characteristic. Okay. Vanilla is uh, a compound that you get from barrels as well that I think complements uh, caramel undertones in a base beer. So that uh, that vanilla flavor and aroma that you naturally get from the wood might complement some type of uh, medium caramel malt additions in a beer. Uh, char and ash, I think, is one that brewers should be fairly uh, aware of. And that uh, if they like to brew fairly roasty stouts or fairly roasty beers, they can probably back off on that, uh, those roasted malts anywhere from 2 to 4%, because they're going to be getting roast and char contributions from the oak itself, especially if it's a heavy toasted spirit barrel like an American bourbon barrel. Um, kind of on that same token, uh, American oak does have some tannic qualities. They tend to be fairly minimal compared to something like uh, French oak wine barrel. But tannins in a finished beer can present as kind of a bitter surge in the finish. So I often encourage brewers to reduce bitterness in a base beer uh, to kind of counteract that, that tannic bitterness that you might get from a barrel. And regarding smoke, um, that is something that um, sometimes comes from barrels in varying degrees. It can present simply as like a like a neutral kind of uh, fruitwood barbecue kind of generic barbecue smoke characteristic, which I think is really pleasant in barrel aged beers, especially dark ones. Uh, if you want to emphasize that, you can use a small percentage of smoked malt in the base beer. We've done that before at Beechwood, where we have uh, brewed a base beer, a big imperial stout for barrels, and we've used uh, 5% oak smoked wheat. So it's, it's the same kind of phenolic uh, smoke profile that would also be coming from the barrel. Your article explained why bourbon barrels are so easy to come by. Tell us why that is. Bourbon barrels are probably the most abundant spirit barrel, certainly in the United States. And uh, federal law dictates that um, that if you're going to call a spirit bourbon, uh, there's a certain grist it needs to have, which is, you know, the majority needs to be corn. But uh, new uh, heavy toast American oak barrels need to be used every time. So bourbon distillers are not allowed to reuse their barrels for anything that they want to call bourbon. And, uh, it sometimes, I mean, most bourbons in the United States are aged for a minimum of four years. Um, if they're aged for less than that, it's often stated on the bottle aged for two years, aged for three years. But if there's no statement of age, um, on the bourbon, uh, bottle, it's probably been aged for four years plus, but that means that for most distillers, bourbon barrels are single use one and done. And so they are abundant and they're relatively inexpensive. You also wrote that the base beer to be aged in barrels must have room for and accommodate the barrel character. That makes sense, but give us some practical specifics there. Okay, so um, a, a beer that would, uh, for example, you, I like 
barrel-aged beers that, that have perceptible alcohol to them. I like big barrel-aged beers. I want to know that there's kind of a substantial spirit character to them, but I don't want to go overboard. So, uh, for example, I wouldn't probably want to go into a bourbon barrel with a base beer that was, you know, like thir- above 13% alcohol. In my opinion, it would not have room for the alcoholic contribution that's going to come from the barrel. It would be too hot. It might actually end up thinning out the body, but it would be kind of going overboard. So I would, I would, um, kind of, uh, in in kind of a counteractive measure make sure that my base beer wasn't too alcoholic so that it had room for the uh the kind of spirit contribution that's coming from the barrel getting back to sort of the concept of how you're modifying base beers to work in a given barrel aging process the example you used before was decreasing bitterness um, in the event that you predict you're going to pick up a lot of tannins. Talk about some other ways that you might modify those base beers. Well, one of the biggest, uh, for me, flaws that I I find uh, generally in um, spirit barrel-aged beers is the body is too thin. Uh, And so I think a lot of that results from uh, some tannin pickup, but a lot of you know, spirit contribution to the base spirit can kind of tend to chip away at body. And so I think you need to counteract that by brewing a base beer that maybe has more body than you would want if you're drinking it on its own. So um, higher finishing gravities or additional use of what I call bodybuilding malts, uh, things like flaked oats, perhaps rye, um, considering the use of uh, things like maybe maltodextrin or lactose and higher mash temperatures. So increasing uh, the final things that you can do to increase final gravity and increase mouthfeel beyond what you would normally want in a base beer. You also mentioned that there aren't very many beer styles that will result in a balanced beer after barrel aging, but which styles would you put on that list? So, what I would say is there are, to kind of clarify, there are, in my opinion, uh, a handful of traditional styles that without modification or without much modification lend themselves to barrel aging. Those tend to be very malt-driven, not hop-driven styles with big residual body. So probably the best example of a traditional style that can go into a barrel unmodified or slightly modified is a, uh, a Scottish, uh, we heavy Scotch strong ale. Uh, another example would be something like, uh, a Belgian quad. It probably, I, we've done those in barrels before. I think those age, uh, really well. I think, uh, English barley wines do well. Um, kind of to contrast that as a general rule, I don't think something like, uh, let's just say a traditional robust porter, uh, people, people have certainly do good robust porters that are barrel aged, but if you take a straight up robust porter, that's maybe six to 7% alcohol, it might just get thinned out to something that's not quite what you want. That's not substantial enough. You suggest ensuring barrels don't get rinsed or steamed after emptying, but there's definitely a lot of folks out there who do rinse and or steam barrels. What's the problem with that approach? Um, I wouldn't recommend doing that. Um, and I think what that does is uh, like it, it 
rinsing barrels and steaming barrels, uh, it can open up the wood, uh, but it also rinses out and diminishes that amazing spirit character that's locked up in a fresh barrel. And this is why I emphasize, um, you know, to people work with a barrel broker that can get you freshly emptied, unrinsed barrels. It's really not tough to do anymore. Uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there were one or two people in the United States who brokered barrels and you kind of got what you got. But nowadays, there are so many barrel brokers that work very closely with distilleries and coopers. Um, and we're often able to get barrels within a week of them being emptied. So it, it's, I, I wouldn't recommend steaming or rinsing. I think you diminish the barrel character and I think you you invite a chance potentially for infection and what about refilling immediately afterwards to get a second use out of the barrel i wouldn't recommend it uh and wood is in general it's not it's not a sanitary surface but there is uh there is a really good way to sanitize it once and that is you char the inside of the barrel and then you fill it with uh, distilled spirit that's 60 to 70% alcohol. That will sanitize it once. Uh, and so that's another reason why going into a freshly emptied spirit barrel is so important is it functionally ensures sanitation. But beer coming out, it can really quickly start to pick up stuff. And uh, I personally don't think it's worth the risk there are people out there who certainly uh do multiple turns on spirit barrels but i think after the first aging period you've really gotten the most out of it talk about barrel storage prior to use and how long can they be stored uh barrel storage i recommend a cool uh dry and and dark place uh some people might have a storage room or, you know, you can store them outside if they're, if they're in a covered area like a garage, I would say. Um, but cool, dark, and dry place is the best place to store barrels. Um, I would say keep them away from grain or any, any kind of dust source, especially any kind of dust source that can, uh, you know, carry bacteria and mold and stuff like grain dust can. Uh, and if you get freshly emptied barrels, uh, I would recommend filling them within a month of arrival. Some people can get away with up to two months if it's if the relative humidity is is high enough and the barrels stay damp. But that's kind of pushing it, I think. You also talked about how um, empty barrels need to you need to make sure they get plugged before they they ship. Um, and you also, I think, you have some some opinions on the the types of bungs that are used there too. My preference is uh, what's called a dead soft wooden bung. Uh, so uh, that's how most spirit barrels are shipped in the United States. Occasionally, um, I'll get uh, plastic bungs, which are adequate, you know, if, if the barrels are, are fairly freshly emptied. Uh, one time I had a shipment of barrels show up and there were uh, those little paper disposable cups like what you get at the dentist office that were in the bung holes. Wow. And I, I refused the order. I sent it back. And the barrel broker was <laughs> uh, was kind of embarrassed. They said, oh, we're so sorry that happened. That, that, was, that should not have happened. Yeah. So no paper cups. Um, I've also had barrels show up that were simply, you know, and this, is, this doesn't happen anymore. This is kind of 
when some of the newer barrel brokers were, were getting their feet wet in the business. But I had barrels show up once that were simply wrapped. Uh, the center section was wrapped in saran wrap and the bungs weren't plugged and those I was not comfortable using either. Coming up. There's no excuse not to plate beer before going into a barrel. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Brewer Supply Group is now the proud, exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to... Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. From large and small breweries to homebrewers, we've provided the beer industry with the best fermentation yeast since 2003. The yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. The Master Brewers calendar is a hot mess, as you might imagine, due to COVID-19. Almost everything in April and May has been postponed or canceled, including the Brewery Packaging Technology course. Definitely check the calendar events at mbaa.com for the latest updates. Here are some events that remain on the calendar as of April 3rd. The District Texas Spring Meeting has been rescheduled. The new date for that is May 29th in Fort Worth. District Midwest meets at BrewDog June 27th. District Northern California has moved their meeting at Drake's Brewing to July 23rd. The best brewing conference worldwide only happens every four years, and it's happening this August. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. How do you inspect a barrel prior to filling it? What are you looking for there? Uh, prior to filling it, uh, as far as the exterior of the barrel goes, I am looking ideally for thick, wide staves. 
and uh, thick, wide staves are typically the sign of a good cooper and a high quality barrel. If you get a barrel that's got a lot of tiny staves that are maybe an inch wide or an inch and a half wide, as opposed to let's just say three inches wide, that's uh, probably more or less a scrap wood barrel and, and typically not good wood, good, substantial Oak. They will, uh, you know, the, the staves will be pretty uniform in width and fairly substantial. So on the outside of the barrel, I, I look for thick, wide, uniform staves. Um, I look to make sure that, uh, there's no mold growing on the outside of the barrel. Um, I, I try not to get barrels that, uh, where the original bung has been, uh, pried out haphazardly with a, a pry bar. And there are huge chunks of wood missing from around the bung hole that might prevent a good seal when I put in a hard bung. Um, and then the interior of the barrel, um, inspecting that just prior to filling, uh, we will remove the, uh, the bung. Uh, we'll get the barrel on, on a barrel rack on its side with the bung facing up, um, and we'll remove the bung and, uh, kind of inspect it with a, a very bright, narrow beam flashlight. And I'm ideally looking for some spirit moisture, if not a little bit of spirit in the bilge, the belly of the barrel. Um, I don't mind a little pile of char flakes at the bottom of the barrel. I'm looking for uniform char. I'm looking to make sure that I can't see any gaps in the staves, any conspicuous gaps. Um, but I'm, I'm looking for, I'm looking for uniformity. And then I carefully smell, uh, the vapor coming out of each barrel and it's going to be intense. It's pure spirit vapor that's coming out. Uh, but it, and it should smell intense. It should smell alcoholic, but it shouldn't smell like solvent. Shouldn't smell like acetone or vinegar. Do you ever use one of those little like mechanic mirrors to, to look at the top of it too? Ooh, that's a good idea. No, okay. no, I haven't. Just curious. I should, I should talk to my dentist about getting one of those or Harbor Freight. I'm there sure you go. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you don't recommend filling barrels directly off a of fermenter. Why is that? Uh, I think most, unless you're, uh, you know, a brewery that has the ability to do very reliable cell counts throughout the entire transfer process. I think there's too much risk in carrying over yeast into a barrel and it doesn't take much yeast, uh, to contribute autolytic flavors to a finished beer. And that's probably, uh, one of the more common flaws that I taste, especially in barrel aged stouts is that kind of umami soy sauce character. And personally, I really don't like it. It, it, I think it, I think it takes away from the character of the beer. And that often happens when brewers fill directly off a fermenter and there's probably more yeast moving over to that barrel than they realize. Uh, and so that's why I recommend not filling off a fermenter. I recommend filling a barrel with clean, bright beer. And it's, you know, the cleaner the beer going in, the cleaner the beer going out. So our standard practice is to uh, rack beer from a fermenter into a bright tank and fine it and fully clarify it. And then we fill barrels with fully clarified, fully chilled beer. You also recommend warming up and degassing the beer in advance. Why? 
So uh, a couple reasons. Uh, you have to cool down the beer, obviously, to precipitate out a lot of haze proteins and clear those proteins. There is always a residual amount of there's always some level of CO2 in in a beer. And I I think that 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 can create pressure issues over pressurization issues in, in barrels. Uh, I suppose somebody could you know, take a, a CO2, dissolve CO2 reading before filling a barrel. It's not something I've done. I mean, maybe if you wanted to kind of calculate what the pressure buildup would be. But um, I also recommend letting the uh, the uh, barrels warm up be, uh, with a vented bung uh, because beer expands uh, anywhere from one to one and a half percent when it's warming up from... Uh, let's just say 32 degrees to 60 or 65 degrees. And that's a substantial volume of beer. It's like multiple pints of beer that's got to go somewhere. So even if you were to fill off a fermenter and you were, let's say you crashed that beer down, you got all the yeast out, it's cold going into the barrel. You could leave headspace, I suppose, and kind of maybe calculate what that expansion would be. But I prefer to fill barrels all the way until they're overflowing. And then we uh, plug them with a vented bung and let them expand, warm up, and off gas for a week. And then we swap out that bung uh, for a solid bung after a week. You've got some tips for sample nail and drill bit sizes. Let's hear that. Oh, what is that? I think the drill bit size is 964th. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm remembering. Is that in a 16D? <laughs> yes. From so the, the nail. The six. The 16D nail, specifically a three and a half inch length. Uh, you can get uh really high quality like three sixteen series stainless steel nails, like almost surgical grade stainless steel nails from McMaster Car or a lot of other supply houses. Super cheap. I think I pay. I feel like it's like ten bucks for a twenty five pack. Um, but that size is, uh, that drill bit size is large enough so that once you drill your pilot hole, uh, the wood, the wet wood in the head of the barrel won't close up. I've tried smaller drill bit sizes before, and, uh, I've had the barrel head, like the hole basically seal up as soon as I was done drilling the hole. So it needs to be big enough, um, but not too big. And that drill bit size allows uh just the right amount of squeeze around the 16d nail when you install it all right good to know what level of micro do you typically do for these beers i think it's a good idea to get uh beer it's there's no excuse not to plate beer before going into a barrel especially breweries that might use some type of diastatic uh uh, yeast like a French saison. So I recommend uh, getting finished beer plated for uh, stray yeast and bacteria, just a full biological plating before you go into a barrel. And that's not that expensive. That's anywhere from one to three hundred dollars at a lab, depending on on the range of tests you want to do. Um, and then pulling beer out of barrels, it's a good idea to plate things there too. Uh, it can take a little bit of practice to get good sanitary samples that, you know, don't, don't have false positives. And 
also, uh, when you when you pull samples out of a, a barrel at the end of the year or so aging process, to make sure the lab that's plating them um, is specifically plating for spoilers, because there might be uh, a, like a non-specific bacilli in a barrel that is not a spoiler that will will plate positive but won't go anywhere and won't be a threat in packaging. Kind of like the bacilli, the non-spoiler bacilli that you might get from dry hopping a beer. All right. Let's hear about your approach to blending. Blending. Oh, that's one of my favorite things. So uh, one of the first barrel-aged beers that we did about seven years ago uh, was an imperial stout. And uh, at the time, I I still had a sense that things like bitterness and roast needed to be reduced in the base beer. Um, But this particular beer, I didn't reduce the bitterness enough. I think on paper, it was around 40 BUs. And when I pulled it out of the barrel after a year, uh, the flavors were great. The aroma was great. And then the finish, it had this awful tannic surge. It was like, oh, this is good. Wow, this is suddenly horrible. And um, I, I thought, well, I wonder, I wonder what happens if I, if I just blend in a little bit of milk stout. I've got a milk stout on tap. Let me put a splash in this pint of barrel-aged stout. And suddenly that counteracted that tannic surge and it added a silkiness back to the beer and it was kind of one of those revelations like oh i see why uh like why people like matt bernoldson are so keen on on blending i used to think oh just brew the beer that you want and go into the barrel just do it right the first time but i was really kind of i was completely missing the uh advantage of being able to fine-tune flavors with different beers and so uh i am a big fan of blending because sometimes you want a different type of beer to to blend into what's coming out of the barrel you recommend checking barrels weekly for leaks and distension how do you correct those problems when you discover them so um We've we've had this happen on occasion where uh, a beer was bung too soon, or there may be something going on in the barrel that we're that that we don't like. But we've seen barrels start to leak and heads kind of start to bulge out a little bit, and that can be a dangerous situation. Uh, I've certainly known of breweries that have had barrels overpressurized, and when a barrel head goes, it can often give no warning. And it's a pretty catastrophic failure when it happens. Uh, so if you if you typically things in barrels happen slow enough that weekly checks are adequate. But if you see a barrel that is kind of showing signs of distension or might be building pressure, I recommend drilling a small hole uh, near actually the uh, the bung hole itself. And the reason I recommend doing it there is because you there probably will be a small amount of headspace in the barrel, and you won't simply be you know uh, depressurizing the barrel by blowing down the liquid volume. So uh, we drill a, a hole in the uh, the top of the barrel right next to the bung, and I have a stainless steel sanitary screw ready to grow on a screw gun. So drill the hole and immediately drill the screw in there, into that hole. And then I back it out slowly until I can very precisely control the bleed rate. And so I just, I will let the barrel completely depressurize. It may take 10 minutes, it may take 
six hours, but it's slow and controlled and safe. Yeah, I, I imagine it's a lot safer than trying to do that on the head of the barrel where, you know, it could go while you're doing it. Um, oh, it, it, it would be a jet of beer. And I also don't recommend uh, people removing bungs because those can shoot out and just completely whack you in the face. So why don't, why, why don't you just uh, screw the screw in instead of drilling the hole first? Uh, you could do that. Uh, you, you could. Um, it might not provide there might be too much i haven't tried it that way before but there might be a little too much squeeze if you will around the threads of the screw it might not allow enough uh clearance for just that that kind of gaseous creep okay um cool but yeah i was just curious it. yeah you could certainly you could certainly try it um the other the other reason i like to use a drill is because I can sanitize the drill bit. I can heat it up over an open flame and kill any bacteria that's on there. I can also spray down the outer surface of the uh, the wood with isopropyl a couple times and functionally uh, lick anything that's on the outside of the barrel. And then when I drill into it, I can drill at a fast speed and kind of create a little bit of smoke. And these are kind of some overlapping practices that functionally reduce or eliminate ingress of crap that's on the outside of the barrel so that's another reason i like to do the drill is because it kind of creates a sanitary uh hole into the the inside of the barrel cool uh talk about aging time i've never understood why brewers age beers especially in bourbon barrels for so long 16 years ago i took over an already established bourbon barrel stout program at old dominion brewing company and I remember getting all the character we wanted out of a one to two week aging process. What does another 11 plus months get you besides storage and cash flow issues? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, good, good question. I, I've tasted beers at uh, one month, two months, three months, four months. I, I've tasted beers on a monthly basis. And I, in general... Uh, at least with the beers that we brew, I, I find that it doesn't kind of crest the hill to the uh, the finish line that I want until that, like, close to the 12-month point. I wow. find that the beers are too, um, after just one or two months, I find the beers are too sharp and not soft enough. And that could be a function of um, uh, micro-oxidation. Also, where you were at Old Dominion, I mean, that's back east. That could have been very different temperature and humidity conditions yeah. that could cause different swelling and, if you will, breathing of the barrel. Because over a period of time, there is an exchange. Beer goes into the wood and comes out with spirit. It goes back into the wood, comes out with more spirit. There's kind of this exchange that takes place. And... uh I don't think you get that full exchange. I haven't been able to get that full exchange in one to two weeks. It's taken, for me, it's taken a year. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it's been obviously a long time since I did it, but I do remember um, there being a drastic uh, difference in time um, just based on the time of year. So, for example, in the summertime, uh, you know, one week might be fine. In the wintertime, you, you needed two weeks. All right. Well, that's all the questions I've got. Did I miss anything that you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, I think that one of the, probably the, the most salient point that, that I like to drive home with, uh, with barrel aged beers is, is really to 
think of the barrel as an ingredient um, and that you should design in most cases you're you're going to get the best results if you design a beer specifically to be compatible with that that barrel character and play around with blending uh, a lot of brew pubs and and uh, smaller breweries have a wide variety of beers on tap play around with all of them and you know take take a pint of beer and measure out one ounce of some other beer and blend it in and see what your ratios get you and i think people will be pleasantly surprised by what they can create and correct um and uh, by by blending i think blending is an immensely powerful tool and we use it all the time That was Julian Schrago here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview with Julian, check out his TQ paper for more tips and tricks. You'll find a link in the show notes or just type barrel into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. Have you figured out which brewing conferences you'll be attending this year? There's one that should be your top priority. Like the Olympics, it only happens every four years, and it attracts the best minds in brewing from across the globe. The World Brewing Congress is hosted by ASBC and Master Brewers in collaboration with the Brewery Convention of Japan, the European Brewery Convention, and the UK's Institute of Brewing and Distilling. It's hands down my favorite brewing conference, and it's packed with the best technical presentations, posters, and networking you will ever experience. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you should be there. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Fermentis. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Seven, 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 seven.